you'll open up, we're going to start this morning in Romans, beginning of Romans. If you turn there, it's in the first and second chapter, Paul describes a, a society there. It's a society that really, it's abandoned God. As we look at this, and I think there's a lot of things you can pull out of this society. A lot of lessons that can be learned if you, when you look into this passage. One of the things that stands out to me, though, is the pride of such a society. The arrogance that a bunch of people can come together and have. Look at Romans in chapter 1. Look at verse 22. Paul writes, Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. If you think about that, what? person can look at God and his glory, his power. We just sang how he framed the world with his might. Who can, who can look at God and say, oh, wait, I got a better idea. Let me do this. What kind of hubris that takes to go there? And Really, it's, it's folly. What kind of hubris does it take to be in folly and declare it to be wisdom because it's yours? There, there's, there's, there's just an arrogance that eats at that. So when I look at this society here in Romans, I see a society inundated by pride. Again, it comes up in verse 32 of chapter 1. It says, who's talking about the, this society? It says, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. So Paul here described the state of the society, some of the actions they were partaking in. He ended, then he had a several first long list of things that the society had begat and all these unrighteous things. And he says, knowing that God's righteous judgment is against that, they decided to declare that, you know what, it's okay to do that. We're going to call those good things now. We're going to be so much more progressive than those people in the past. We're, we're, we know better now. I, I'm amazed. At the same time, I'm not. I'm, not ama- I'm amazed that I'm not surprised. Because we see this in, in man all the time. You can find this throughout. And so it's not surprising. But in a way, that's amazing in and of itself. That people can decide that they're going to change God. And Paul, Paul calls it out again as you move on down to verse 3. He says, And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing the, such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? So are you so proud? Are you so arrogant that you think if you get enough people saying that it's okay, that you'll make God change his mind, that you will change? If you get enough people to sign the petition that this is now righteous, see God, you can't judge us now because we all say it's okay. It, to think that that's, you, you're not going to escape the judgment of God. And Paul, Paul throughout this passage, the, the hubris of that society that Paul describes stands out again and again to me. Like I said, it, it's, almost, it's amazing in a way that it's not surprising. Because it's not unique to that time in that society. When I look around at the world today... You can see much the same thing. Pride inundates our society. Pride flows through so much of what we consider. Not just, not just the arrogance that society will still call out, but pride that 
it serves as the foundation of some of our thinking that actually leads to what society will declare to be good and right. And, we, and yet we reject what God has to say and say, no, 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 this is, this is, this is what is really right. I, I'm not trying to say today is so much worse. You know, in Ecclesiastes, we read Ecclesiastes 7 and 10. We read, it says, do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. You know what? It's not that today is worse than then or comparing worse times. Everything, it, it, it's, there, there's evil all the time. It's always bad. It's always out there. And this pride is always there. But I see it today just like you could see it back then. And, and, and sometimes it comes out in ways that and you might not even recognize. And that's why I want to take this moment today and stop and think about what it looks like to be humble, to remind ourselves what this actually is so that we can see the pride that society tries to slip in on us. Let's consider those just for an example of one thing that society these days likes to declare that I think is rooted in pride. It's one of the big modern religious theological things these days is this whole I'm spiritual but not religious you know I've, I believe there's a God I just don't believe in this organized religion thing that's just man's attempt to control other men and they're, they're using God to do it I don't believe in that and when you listen to, when you listen to someone who talks like that you, you, they hear something about God that they don't, they don't think is right or they see something in the Bible that they don't agree with and they say well that's clearly not God because God wouldn't do that. That's not who God is. And they say it with a sense of reverence almost. Where, oh no, I respect God's goodness, his great kindness and love. I respect all of that of God. And so I know he wouldn't do that. And if you try to challenge him, you're the one blaspheming God because you're trying to manipulate and change God and use God to control other people and make them change. You're the blasphemous one. But if you think about what that boils down to, really, when you decide that that's not God because that's not what you imagine God to be, you're saying, I can accept that there's a great, mighty, all-powerful, omniscient, omnipotent God who created all of reality and is sovereign over it all. I can accept that on the condition that he's in perfect agreement with me. Because I know that this God, this all-powerful being, wouldn't think differently than me. But that's how I know that's not what God would do. So when you boil it down, the hubris for somebody to declare that their paradigm is the only paradigm worthy of a God is a, is a view founded on pride. If you can't accept something that's truth coming, whether or not it at first agreed with you, your pride is getting in the way of hearing God. And that's just one example of things that society say today that when you boil it down, it's really pride is at the heart of it. Pride of life is one of the three things John, John broke the world into. And we find that at the heart of a lot of things. And so this morning, hopefully we can... Instead of trying to piece out all these different things of society and peel all these things out that pride is embedded into, I hope by just looking at a few humble men 
we can maybe flesh out what humble looks like and then thus and recognize how do how we can hold on to that and not be not succumb to the pride of the world so the first man I want to look at is actually Habakkuk. I know we read we read about Naaman. We'll get to Naaman in a in a minute. The first person I want to look at is Habakkuk. So let's go to the beginning of the book of Habakkuk. In chapter one of this book has an exchange between the prophet and God. And the prophet says a couple things. God says, and let's look at this exchange. It begins in verse two of chapter one. And Habakkuk asks asks God a question. He says, "Oh Lord." How long shall I cry, and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Habakkuk looks out at the world and says, God, why is there all this injustice? Why are you tolerating this, God? How long do I have to watch this? When are you going to do something about this, God? People, Unrighteous people are issuing judgment. It's not what you want, God. So how long until you do something about this? But God's answer is not what Habakkuk said. And God says, this is not what you're going to expect. He begins in verse 5. He says, look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told to you. So God says, you think that doesn't make sense. Just watch. And he goes on. He says, for I indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. So God says, not only am I tolerating all this unrighteousness, I'm raising it up so that I can use it. He's going to use the Chaldeans to come in and judge and punish this unrighteousness. But the Chaldeans are unrighteous. They're bitter. They're a bitter people too. But God says, I'm raising that up. I'm not just letting it go. He continues. He says, they are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses are also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold for they heap up mounds of earth and seize it. Then his mind changes and he transgresses. He commits, he commits offense, imputing this power to his God. God says, I'm going to raise them up. They're going to come through and destroy everything. And they're not even going to acknowledge me for it. They're going to claim it for themselves. That was God's answer to Habakkuk when he said, how long is this going to go on in the world? So now Habakkuk is really confused. And he, he, so he asked, he asked God a, set, a next question. He says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment, O Rock. You have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously? And hold your tongue when the wicked devours more righteous than he. Back says, wait a minute, God. That, that don't make a lick of sense. You're too holy for that. Why would, how could you use those people? No, God, you, you can't do that. They're gonna, you're going to let these unrighteous people devour more righteous? Wait a minute. Wasn't Habakkuk first complaining about the unrighteousness of the people he's now calling the more righteous? Because all of a sudden it doesn't make sense. 
he's got that guy you're just no that just doesn't make sense guy he goes on he says why do you make men like fish of the sea like creeping things that have no ruler over them they take up all they take up all of them with a hook they catch them in their net and gather them in their dragnet therefore they rejoice and are glad therefore they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet because by them their share is sumptuous and their food plenteous shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity these people are going to worship their nets and their dragnets and not you. They're not going to give you the glory, God. Why are you... He's incredulous that God would be doing such a thing. But there's a critical... He, he closes with a critical statement in verse 1 of chapter 2. Critical, critical at least for our purposes today, in, in seeing humility. And I think it's a, it's a fascinating thing Habakkuk says. when he says, I will stand my watch... And set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am reproved. What a statement of humility. Back says, okay, this don't make any sense. But I wonder what I'm going to say when God corrects me. Because there's what God thinks and what God's going to do. And here's what Habakkuk thinks. And we all know which one is really the right answer. And Habakkuk does too. And he says, I know I'm going to be reproved because obviously I'm in disagreement with God. There's, there's the humility that's lacking over in Romans. God, this doesn't, that doesn't make sense. That's not the, the God I would believe in, so that must not be God. Let me create my own. No. Habakkuk, not only does he say, okay, it doesn't make sense to me, but I know it's God, so I know I'm going to be corrected. Okay, I have to be corrected. I'll be wrong. He's not upset about it. He's standing his watch and waiting to see what he will say because he knows that if this is what God is thinking, how God is viewing it, there's something great and glorious that he's missing. And he can't wait to be shown it. And he can't wait to see how wrong he is because that will show him something even greater. That's what humility looks like when a man goes before God. Let's look at another, another example of a humble man. We'll go over to 2 Kings now. And we, we, read, we read from 2 Kings chapter 5. And this is the story of Naaman. And so we read through that story. I'm not going to read it all again, but we'll bounce, through, we'll bounce through the highlights. In particular, those that show the kind of man that Naaman is. Because Naaman, I think, often gets a, gets a bad rap. Most of the time, people hear Naaman, they think, oh yeah, we're going to study about how how bad, how prideful Naaman was. I, I submit to you this morning that Naaman, I think, is actually a very humble man. Now, he, 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 has, he, has, his, he, has, a, he has a battle that he has to face for himself, but I submit that through most of this, at least, he is actually quite humble. So, remember, he, Naaman is the commander of the army of Syria, the, the kingdom to the north of Israel. You have Syria as kind of... As, a powerful nation at the time, a powerful kingdom at the time. You have Egypt as a powerful kingdom at the time. In between the two are Judah and Israel, who ally themselves variously with different things to play the part. But they're not, they're not of the strength at the time of Syria or Egypt. And so they're kind of stuck in the middle. And so you have this commander of the Syrian army who has a captive from Israel. At some point they were raiding through Israel and they took a captive young girl. And it's this captive young girl whose idea Naaman seizes on. Think of all the different reasons why he could not, why, why 
Society and pride would tell him not to listen to this. Think of the women at the time. She's a girl. She's young. She's a captive. She's from Israel, this back world, third world country. Uh, and yet, Naaman hears an idea from this young girl and says, I think I'll go with that. Now, okay, he could be desperate. I, get, I grant that. Like, but at least he... But I, I submit, if, he was, if that was the type of man he was where he wouldn't normally listen... He wouldn't know who it came from. If his wife heard it and he, she knew he was the type of man who wouldn't listen to an idea from a lowly servant girl, she would wrap it up differently. So I, he wouldn't know where it came from. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm supposing there. But here is a man we see who in humility will listen to the idea of a captive young servant girl. And when he goes to the king for, to take his leave... He's not ashamed of where it came from either. He tells the king, this is from a captive young servant girl whose idea I'm taking right now. Not, oh, I've heard of a great idea and I'm going to try this, king. He's not ashamed of where it came from either. So I think there's a key lesson, one key lesson of humility there for us is thinking about what we're willing to listen to, what we're open to, and being ready to hear things from anywhere. And at least listen to them. And, okay, I, I just railed on society and the foolishness of society. Now I say, listen to ideas from anywhere. I, the two are in conflict. I get it. Anywhere that something from the Bible could be brought to us from anybody. Let, let's, let's put it that way. You know, our, let's not be so proud in ourselves, proud in our study, that somebody's idea, somebody, anybody who says something, well, could the Bible be saying this? Like, we don't just dismiss it offhand. Let's make sure we're still founding ourselves, not in any idea, harebrained idea of society, but in God's wisdom that we're seeking, that we're listening to our ideas from that. And contrast Naaman's willingness to go along with this idea from a young slave girl, a young captive girl, to the king of Syria himself. He hears what Naaman plans to do. And he, like, like those people over in Romans, say, no, 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 I have a better idea. He says, no, you're going to go to the king of Israel. Here, take this letter. I'm going to send you to the king. He doesn't go along with the idea. Changes it and wants to do his own thing. There's, there's the contrast of what a humble man does to what a prideful man does when presented with something. He says, no, I, I can improve this. I'm going to do better. I'm going to send you to the king. And that almost backfires because he gets to the king and the king doesn't know what to do with him. He tears his clothes. says, how am I supposed to heal a man of leprosy? Like, the king doesn't know what to do. But thankfully, Elijah does hear about it. And he sends a messenger to the king and says, have him come to me. Here's our, my, our, our second point that I, I submit to Naaman, submit the humility of Naaman, is that Naaman just goes. Okay, I mean, we, as, as far as we know, as far as what's recorded, he just goes. He's traveled, he comes to a king. The king's subject, Elisha, says, send him to me. Why didn't Elisha come? To, why didn't Elisha come? He sent a messenger. He could have come in that same amount of time. Yet Elisha says, "Send him to me." He's at the throne. He's at he's at the throne room of a king, and he goes to the shack of Elisha instead. And he and he goes. He he, he responds to the call once again. Maybe he's desperate, but I, there's something to be said for his willingness to go along with the plan. And so he goes to Elisha. And he gets there. And he gets there and Elisha sends another messenger out and says, go and wash in the Jordan. 
seven times and you'll be cleared of leprosy. Now, here's where Naaman actually, here's where we see Naaman get upset. Here's where he gets his bad rap. You know, I can kind of sympathize with him though. If you were just going to send a messenger out to meet me, why didn't you just send that, that message with the first messenger? Why did I come all this way to you if you weren't even going to come out of your house and just send somebody else with the message? I can kind of sympathize. I'm getting jerked around here. I go to the king. I come to Elisha. Now I got to go to the Jordan. I, I can sympathize. But I, that just, that opens, that anger, that frustration opens the door for Naaman's pride. And that's where it steps in because now Naaman starts thinking of better ideas. I can, I have better ideas. Because he says, are not in 12, are not the Abana and the, Par, the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all of these waters? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away, so he turned away and went, so he, he turned and went away in a rage. There is where his pride starts flaring up. Oh, I, I can come up with a better idea than dipping in the Jordan. And after you drug me all the way around the country, going, send me three different directions, why, why was I going through all of that if all you're going to do is tell me to dip in the Jordan? So I think there's an important lesson. And if you accept the premise that Naaman up till now has been behaving fairly humbly, there's an important lesson there in that a humble man is not humble because they're incapable of pride. It's not that they have nothing in them that makes them want to be proud. But it's that they overcome that in them to remain humble. And we're going to see Naaman, in the end, he overcomes this because he gets healed. He gets cleaned, cleansed. So it's not, it's important, to, it, I think that's very important to keep in mind. Because when you're, you're not ever going to be able to sit back and be like, oh, there is no bit of pride left in me. You're, we have to keep watch for it. And keep striving for that humility. And so after he, that pride flares up in Naaman, in verse 13, it says, His servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more than when he says to you, wash and be clean? Here's my next point that I think makes Naaman a, a humble person. He has servants who will come to him and say, you're, you're being a fool right now. He doesn't, he's not surrounded by a bunch of yes-men. They're comfortable enough to go to him. He's, they, he has put people in his life who will call him out. It's iron sharpens iron, we, we read. This is somebody who will have somebody around him who, even though is a servant, will come to him and say, aren't you being a bit ridiculous right now? You're upset because it's not some grand thing that happened. You're upset because it's too easy. That, that doesn't make any sense. And so a servant comes to him and calls him out. Just the fact that that man is there and willing to do that speaks to a humble, a humble man who has put people in his life. And then the hardest thing of all, the thing that tell, shows me the most, the humility of Naaman is he says, you're right and I'm wrong. Because he goes to the Jordan and does it. Now, not only has he subjected himself to this command of Elisha, gone and done this thing that doesn't make sense to him and accepted it, not only has he humbled himself to that, but he's done it after he first railed against it. Now he has to do that while saying, you're right 
I was wrong. And doing this shows that I accept I was wrong. And so when I read this story of Naaman, I find a man who again and again had things in his life that kept him humble, that he acted humbly, so that when that temptation of pride came into his life, when it flared up, he had a means to overcome it and a means to remain a humble man. And after he comes out of the water, if I were writing... If I were writing a story with a prideful man in it who comes up out of the water being cleansed of leprosy, I would have a man who would declare, oh, look what favor a God has shown me. A God has cleansed me of my leprosy. I have been deemed worthy by a God. But Naaman goes back instead to Elisha to say thanks. He returns and gives gives credit to where it came from and does not look at the greatness of himself that he was deemed worthy to be cleansed of leprosy by a God. So that's, hopefully when we look at Naaman, we can see, we can see those things that we can put into our lives that'll help us guard against the pride that society wants to teach us. There's another, you know, another. We'll look at we'll look at another man. I'm looking at my time. I'm going to cut a few men out because I rambled. But uh, there's one last thing. I want one last man. I want to look at is Asa. So if you turn over to Second Chronicles, in chapter 14, Asa recognizes his position is dependent on God. Because that's another lie society will tell us today. A good goal is to be a strong, independent person. You're supposed to raise your children to be strong and independent. This idea of independence, what it means to be an independent person. I think One, I think, I think it's a sham. As COVID taught us, we're all still pretty dependent on the toilet paper manufacturer. But... <laughs> None of us are going to be independent. But independence is not God's model for us. He put plenty of things in our life that we can depend on. If I am a Christian in need, I'm supposed to be able to depend on fellow Christians to help me. A husband and wife are supposed to be able to depend on each other fully and completely. Most importantly, we're all supposed to depend on God. That's the only thing we can depend on for our salvation. That is this idea of independence that I can rely on myself and pull myself up by my bootstraps. This idea is, is, is a lie that society puts out that really, when you boil it down, is founded on pride because I don't need anybody else. All I need is myself. But, so I, I, when I think about that and I think about how society wants us to be independent, I like to, I like to look over at Asa. And in Second Chronicles Chapter 14, beginning in verse 8, it says, Asa had an army of 300,000 men from Judah who carried shields and spears, and from Benjamin, 280,000 men who carried shields and drew bows. All these were mighty men of valor. Then Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots, and he came to Maresha. All right, so... If we do the math, here's 580,000 men, mighty men of valor, versus a million men with 300 chariots, arrayed out for battle. Now, somebody who's independent, somebody who's 
going to rely on the strength. These are mighty men of valor. It's not, it's not even two to one. It's, it's, a one to, it's one and some change combat ratio. They're men of valor. You know, somebody who's going to rely on themselves might think, I can figure this out. Find the right terrain. I can neutralize the chariots. If I do, if I do some good MDMP, I can probably solve this problem. That's military decision-making miles. Army, that's army speak that I've learned for, we don't, well, never mind, I won't, I won't, I won't, I won't go down on, I won't go down that route. But it, I can probably figure this out myself. It's not overcomable. Six, I can, I can fix here, I can flank here, and I can overcome this million man army. That's what a man who is independent, relying on themselves would think and where they would go. And it's not, at the numbers we have here, it's not completely unfeasible. But, as we read on, we find how Asa went about this. So, so Asa went out against him, and they set the troops in battle array in the valley of Zephatha at Marisha. And Asa cried out to the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those who have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on you. And in your name we go against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. So the Lord struck the Ethiopians before Asa and Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. God, it's all you? Yeah, I have 580,000 men. You could help if I had nothing. You could help if I had 2 million men. Doesn't matter. You help when you help, and that's all that matters. And so I'm going to depend on you. The humility that we have when we approach God must be of total dependence on God. We must be willing to be as Asa and say, God, I depend on you. That's the dependence that we put in God. That's, and that's, that's what pride wants to take away from us and wants to lie to us and tell us that we don't need that. We can figure it out ourselves. We can come, we can come up with a better wisdom, better than God's wisdom. But we can't. Our only answer in this life is to humble ourselves and rely on God. That was Asa's answer. That's our answer. That's our answer to salvation, too. If we go back to Naaman. Naaman was supposed to go dip in a muddy river to be cleansed. Doesn't make much sense. Why does that matter? You know what? Why does, why does baptism matter? That water's not special. That water, if it went down a different pipe, would have come out of a water fountain and somebody would have drank it. Why does that matter? That doesn't make any sense, God. Why would I do something like that? How could that matter to you? You say it's by faith, and I have faith. Isn't that enough? You know what? This is the only thing that makes sense to me, God, so this is how I'm going to view salvation. That's what people want to say when they look at God and when they think about salvation today. But that's not humility. That's pride. Humility says, well, if you said so, God, then I guess that's what I have to do. It's like the blind man in John 9. 
I said one more example. I'm sorry. Two more. Now one more. It's like the blind man in John 9. Who after Jesus had healed him of his sight, there's a whole story there. I love, I love, the, I love the story of the Pharisees trying to deny it. They're fighting against truth. I love looking at the struggle. We're going to skip over all of that, though, this morning. And come back to the man. After he's gone through this, he's watched the Pharisees argue over whether or not Jesus, who restored his sight, was a man from God. It's become quite apparent to this man that clearly Jesus was from God. The Pharisees have no other answer. They're struggling themselves to try to think of something. Clearly the only conclusion, this man is from God. And in John chapter 9, Jesus comes back to the man after he's been cast out. Jesus had left him after he restored his sight. Jesus comes back to him in verse 35 of chapter 9. It says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of God? So remember, this man has already concluded that Jesus is from God, doesn't know exactly who he is, doesn't know all of what Jesus has been teaching. All he knows is that this man gave me sight. Clearly he had power from God. That's how God proved who the prophets were. This man speaks for God. And Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of God? He answered in verse 36 and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? You tell me. You tell me who, and I'll believe in him. You are from God. You speak the words of God. So I believe what you say. That's the blind man's answer. When God speaks, I believe. If that's what you say, if you say there's a son of God, then I believe there's a son of God. Because you speak for God. So when we see the teachings of God, when we look at when we read our Bible, when we see the teachings of God, we can run them through our own prideful filter, apply our own common sense to it, apply man's wisdom, and decide if my paradigm is really the only thing worthy of a God. Or we can put on humility. We can say, well, this is what God says. So I can't wait for me to be reproved so that I can see the glory of God's wisdom. That is the only response that makes any sense when you consider who God is and who we are. That is the response that each and every one of us need to make. When we, co- when we see what God has said, told us, told for us, told us, I don't know, there's words there, they're not matching. As when we see what God has for us to do, there we go. Then we have one response. Okay, God, you are God, and I humbly submit to you. So if you are here this morning, and you have not done that, if you have not submitted yourself to God, if you have not humbled yourself to accept God, You are standing on your own pride. You are standing on the pride of life and the world is passing away, John says. And that will pass away too. What you are standing on will crumble beneath you. But if you are ready to stand this morning humbly in dependence on God, then there's no better time than right now. And if you have been struggling in your walk with God, if pride has been coming to your life, If you have any need of us this morning, please come while we sing.